Well, good morning once again, and welcome to Redeeming Grace Church. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is good as it is every week to gather together with you to worship our God and King. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark this morning, in Mark chapter 9, and Carice is going to read our sermon text this morning. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind of thing cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, you are good and you are glorious. We praise you this morning. God, as we open up your living and active word, we pray that you would help us by your spirit to see the goodness and gloriousness of Jesus, your son, who meets us where we're at and is our very present help in time of need. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, if you've had the opportunity to go on a vacation, you've probably also had the experience while you're on that vacation where you get to the point of thinking, man, it's almost over and I've got to get back to home, back to reality. Getting back to reality doesn't mean the experience that you had on that time away wasn't real. It just means it isn't what's real, normal, everyday life, what it looks like. Getting back to reality is about getting back to what's happening in the here and now. Two weeks ago, we got back into our Follow Me sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. This is a book of the Bible where Mark, the author, is writing to help us to understand who Jesus really is and what it means to know him, 
what it means to follow him. And what we just saw of Jesus in the beginning of Mark chapter 9 is this amazing transformation that takes place up on the mountain where Jesus is literally glowing as his radiant glory is being revealed. And Peter, James, and John, three of his closest disciples, are there to behold this, to look into the fullness of who Jesus is in all of his greatness, in all of his grandeur. But it was just a sneak peek. This transfiguration was real, but it didn't last because there was more work to be done. So now they head down the mountain. They head back to reality. And as they do, they immediately enter into the real brokenness of the world here and now. Now, in part of the telling of this story here, Mark is seeking to advance the narrative. But we have to recognize the juxtaposition of what's just happened, the gloriousness of Christ being revealed to what's about to happen. We've seen Jesus as transcendent as we get this peek into his glory, but now we're reminded that that same Jesus is also imminent. He's close. God and human flesh come to dwell among the weak and the weary, people like you and people like me. As we get into our text today and the story before us, we see the honest struggle of a desperate father, a desperate father with a suffering son, who's experiencing physical challenges and spiritual challenges. And what we see is a real struggle of faith, a real struggle of belief that all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, can have as well. All of us. No matter if you've been a follower of Christ for a really long time or are just checking out who Jesus is, all of us can struggle in some way, at some time, with some amount of unbelief. But we'll also see, once again, how amazing Jesus is. As he, in his closeness, meets this man where he is, in the midst of his unbelief. And that's good news for us. Because when we have real struggles of faith, real struggles of belief, Jesus invites us to come to him for help, too. So my hope today is that you would come to Jesus whether that's for the very first time in your life or for the thousandth time, that you would come to him for help, that you would come to him for hope, whether you find yourself full of faith or finding it hard to believe, whether you're doing really great right now or you're really, really struggling, that you would come knowing, believing that Jesus came to you, that he came for you to rescue and redeem you and to restore all that sin has broken. So let's dive into Mark chapter 9, and may God bless the preaching of his word. Our text today is going to unfold in three movements, three parts of a story. So let's look at the first one here, a real need. Look at verse 14. It says, and when they, meaning Jesus, Peter, James, and John, came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. As we come to our text today, again, we see Jesus, Peter, James, and John are coming down off of this mountain, the mountain of transfiguration, and they're coming back to reality. One author said it's a move from a scene of glory to the troubled world below. As they get back down to level ground, they see a large crowd and an argument that's going on between Jesus' remaining disciples and the scribes. These are scholars of the law. Scribes often were in conflict with Jesus and his disciples, questioning Jesus, challenging Jesus on what he taught and what he did as they saw it based on their understanding of the law. But as they did this, they often missed Jesus. 
Now, at this point, we don't know what they're arguing about. Neither, neither does Jesus or these other three disciples. You probably all had experiences like that, right, where you walk into a room or a situation and there's a heated conversation going on, maybe between some kids or coworkers. We have no idea what it's all about. But in this instance, we're about to find out what's up. Look at verses 15 and 16. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? As Jesus approaches, the crowd sees him and they run to him. Why? It says because they're greatly amazed by Jesus. They've heard about him. They've likely seen and listened to maybe some of his teachings or seen or heard about some of his works and his miracles. And so they want to come and see him. They want to check out who Jesus is, maybe talk to him, maybe hear from him. It's like seeing a famous person out on the street and thinking, oh, I just want to, I just want to be near them. I ran into somebody even this past week at the mall, a Washington national baseball player. And, oh, man, if you know me, I was like, oh, I got to go talk to him. I did. It wasn't too awkward, I don't think. But we have those moments, we want to get close. Just, oh, what's going on? Let me, let, me, let me learn something. Let me be close. This crowd gathers around him. He asks them, then, what's this argument about? What's going on here? But notice, it isn't the disciples that answer Jesus' question. It isn't the scribes that answer Jesus' question about what this argument is all about. A man from the crowd steps up, a father who is central to what's been going on, what's about to happen. Look at verses 17 and 18. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. This man has a real need. His son is suffering significantly, both physically and spiritually. He tells Jesus there's an unclean spirit that's caused his son to be mute and essentially to have epileptic-like seizures. Now, one quick side note. In life, we should be careful not to over-spiritualize things, but we also shouldn't discount the spiritual realm in the midst of our everyday struggles and sufferings. Spiritual warfare is real. And you and I are both physical and spiritual beings. But the good news is that the hope of the gospel is that Jesus will bring restoration to both of those things. But now we can see more of what the problem is, more of what this argument is about. See, this man had heard about Jesus. Perhaps he had even found out that Jesus was in town nearby. And he's thinking, man, I'm in a desperate place, so I'm going to go look for Jesus. He, maybe he can help me. But instead of finding Jesus, he finds some of his disciples because Jesus is up on the mountain. And so thinking, well, if it's not Jesus, maybe these guys can help me. And so he asked them, can you help out with my son, with my situation? They seem to have said yes. After all, Jesus had commissioned them, empowered them to do something like this. They've already done it to some, with some level of success that we saw earlier in Mark 6. But this time, this time, something's different. They can't do it. This is likely what sparked the argument with the, with the scribes and the disciples. And while it's turned into a theological debate between those two groups, this desperate dad just wants help. He just wants healing for his son. He was looking for Jesus all along in the first place, and now he has him right in front of him. Now that Jesus knows what's going on, he responds in word and in action. Verse 19, he says, and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? 
How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Jesus is exasperated with the crowd, with the scribes, with his own disciples, not in a sinful, eye-rolling kind of way. This is more of a sadness, a lament, than it is a disappointment. And what's he lamenting? Well, he's lamenting the primary problem with all involved. They are faithless. They aren't trusting God. They aren't looking for help from him. We'll come back to that to more in a minute. But for now, we see the compassionate and engaging heart of Jesus. He doesn't throw up his hands in disgust. He doesn't walk away. He engages the need and asks for the boy to be brought to him. And when he is, he gets a front row seat to this boy's suffering. Verse 20, and they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. The spiritual world reacts to the presence of Jesus. We've seen this all throughout the gospel of Mark. We see it again here. And this all leads to this next movement within this story. There's a real need for this man and his son, but it's a real need that reveals a real struggle. What's going on in this father's heart? And this is where I want to spend the most of our time. Look at verses 21, the beginning of verse 22. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. After seeing what happens to this boy, Jesus asked the question, how long has this been going on? Right? Your doctor asks you that question when you come in. He's just trying to get a lay of the land. What's been going on? We don't know how old this child is. Perhaps he's a preteen or a teenager. But the point is, it's been going on for a while. And what's happening in this moment before Jesus isn't even the worst of it. Sometimes the spirit even tries to destroy this image bearer of God. But then the dad says something. He says something that lets us into his thinking, to into his feeling as it relates to his son and who he thinks Jesus is. Look at the rest of verse 22. He says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us, if you can. This isn't so much about his doubting Jesus' willingness to help, but his ability to help. Father's thinking, maybe my need, maybe my son's need. Notice he doesn't just say compassion on him. He says compassion on us. He's looking for help for himself as well. Maybe it's too hard. Maybe it's too big, insurmountable. Maybe even Jesus, this famous teacher and miracle worker, maybe even he can't do anything about our problem. Do you ever have moments like that? something going on in your own life that just seems like it might be too big even for God? I know I've had moments like that, thinking there's no way that God can step in. There's no way that God can show up in something like this. See, he isn't doubting the heart of Jesus, but feelings of goodwill and sympathy won't solve the problem. This is a real struggle for him. So how does Jesus respond? I mean, he's a busy guy. Lots of people are clamoring for his time and his attention. And this guy doesn't seem fully convinced Jesus can actually do anything to relieve his distress. So does Jesus just move on? No, Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus doesn't reject him. He draws him in and he exposes the core issue of his heart. Verse 23, and Jesus said to him, if you can, 
All things are possible for one who believes. All things are possible, not promised. All things are possible. He's not preaching some kind of health and wealth gospel like if just you have enough faith, then that automatically means what you want is what you will get. He says all things are possible for the one who believes. See, this isn't about Jesus' ability at all. This is about the man's faith and who he believes Jesus to be. And Jesus has struck a nerve with this desperate dad here because it says, verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. This crying out is a strong emotional response. It isn't subtle. It isn't theological. It's significant. He's desperate for help. He has a real need, a real struggle, and he's having a really hard time believing. He's having a real struggle of faith. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 11 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith, then, is inherently challenging for us. It presses on our desire to know everything. It presses on our desire to be in control of everything. It requires us to trust in someone or something else when things are out of our control, when what lies ahead isn't always clear. That's what's going on with this dad. He has a real need, but he isn't sure what's going to happen. He isn't sure what lies ahead. It's out of his control. He can't fix his son's problem. So where will he put his trust? Where will he put his faith? So in his desperation, he says one of the most honest things I think any person can say. I believe, help my unbelief. It's almost a paradoxical statement. I believe, but I also don't believe. I have faith but I'm also faithless. Two things that don't seem to be simultaneously possible, yet this is real life. Faith and doubt coexisting in the same heart and mind. And the reason for that is because you and I live in this now and not yet world. Christ has come, but there's still sin, there's still brokenness, there's still difficulty in our life and in our world. We see life through a mirror dimly, not clearly. But I don't want us to miss something key in this. Help my unbelief is actually an act of faith. And it's what sets his response to his struggles apart from the faithless crowd. See, he isn't wrestling with unbelief. He isn't wrestling with doubt and seeking to find answers within himself or within the world. He isn't deconstructing or dismantling his whole system of belief in the midst of his crisis. No, he's bringing his jumbled self, a man of faith and a man of doubt. He's bringing that to God in human flesh. See, this man does believe because he comes to Jesus, asking not only for help for his son, but help for his own unbelief. Brothers and sisters, this is a great encouragement for us. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is a great encouragement for you. Because what we're learning here is this, that this isn't about the amount of faith you have, but the object of your faith. It can be the tiniest measure of faith when it's faith in a very big God. Maybe some of you who are not yet Christians, but are, are seeking, are exploring. Maybe you're at a place where you want to believe, but you still have questions. You still have doubts. You're still unsure about certain things when it comes to knowing Christ. That's okay, because I do too. Other people in this room do as well. 
You don't have to know everything there is to know about God. You don't have to know everything there is to know about the gospel or about Jesus and his kingdom to place your trust in him, to place your faith in him. What you do need to know is that you are lost and in need of rescue and that Jesus alone is the one who can give that to you because he alone is the one who died to pay for the penalty of your sin and rose again to give you new life. Not because you deserve it, but because of his grace. So if that's where you're at, let me implore you, come to him in faith, even with remaining doubt, knowing that Jesus will continue to reveal himself to you through his word and through his people as you follow him. But you know, I'd say the same thing to those of us who are already followers of Jesus. Come to him in faith, even with remaining doubt in your life. Be honest and come to him with your real needs and your real struggles and say, just like this father, I believe. Help my unbelief. Faith is hard in a world of distractions. It's hard in a world of difficulty. It's hard amidst the piles of laundry and overflowing inboxes dwindling bank accounts. A life of following Jesus is not made up of all mountaintop transfiguration kinds of moments. Sometimes we're just on the ground level and we're getting smacked in the face with the realities of life as we fight for joy and fight for faith. It's hard. Man, it's worth it because Jesus alone has the words of life. Where else will you go? Where else to who else will you go? Anyone else, anywhere else will literally be a dead end. But this story of this desperate dad is helpful because it shows us that we don't have a fake it till you make it kind of faith. One where you have to show up on Sunday and pretend like your faith is through the roof. That everything's okay. That you're trusting God fully and complete with every aspect of your life. Where really the reality on the inside is that you are feeling torn apart, fraught with holes and weakness. See, the enemy, the enemy would have you believe that God is disappointed with your real struggles of faith. That he's disappo- God's disappointed with your doubt. The enemy would have you believe that you need to figure it out on your own. How could you call yourself a Christian if you're doubting God? How can you call yourself a follower of Jesus if you have some level of unbelief in your life? You need to get that figured out before you go back to him again. That's a lie from the enemy. He'd have you believe you're the only one who deals with this. I've had moments like that where I'm around other brothers and sisters or at a conference or something, seeing someone speak or talking with others, thinking like, man, do they ever, do they ever question God? Do they ever doubt? Maybe I'm the only one. But what we see in this story, once again, is the compassionate and caring heart of Christ. When this man expresses his honest doubts, Jesus doesn't brush him aside. He listens to him and he helps him. Look at verses 25 through 27. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. The enemy wanted to destroy the boy. Jesus wants to restore him. And I love the closeness and the nearness of Jesus we see in this picture, the resurrecting power on display. It says it seems like he was dead. Maybe he actually was, but Jesus comes near him and he raises him up again. 
power that we'll see all the more in the coming chapters as Jesus himself will head to the cross and also will rise from the grave. See, this scene highlights once again who Jesus is. It helps us once again to be able to see what he's able to do. He is the king of the kingdom. He is God himself. And what I want you to see, what I want you to be encouraged by is that just as Jesus didn't brush aside this man, even in, in the midst of his doubts, he won't brush you aside either. Bringing your doubts to Jesus doesn't offend Jesus. So be honest with him. Don't allow unbelief to actually keep you from him. Listen to me, there is no shame in wrestling with unbelief. The key here isn't how much faith you have compared to how much doubt you have, how much unbelief you have, as if it's a math problem. Right? As long as I've got a little bit more faith and doubt, I'm okay. No, that's not the point. The key here is coming to Jesus for help in the midst of the doubt. The key here is coming to him instead of trying to figure it out on your own, apart from him. Don't stay in that place. See, what this man displays for us is an act of faith, is an act of humility. It's a, it's a picture of letting go of self-sufficiency and coming to the only one who can help. And that was the problem with the disciples. Look at verses 28 and 29. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer what Jesus is getting at here is that they were trying to do this on their own. They were trying to fix the problem on their own. They weren't asking for help from God like this desperate dad was. So we have to see something in this whole story here. What grieves Jesus isn't the man's honest doubt or his weak faith. It's the faithless unbelief of the scribes, of the crowd, of even the disciples that's marked by depending on self instead of God. See, the issue with unbelief isn't that it exists within the human heart. It's what we do with it. It isn't that it exists in our minds. It's what we do with it. See, the disciples needed to learn that they are just like the father, this desperate dad. They need to be desperate like he is, not self-reliant. Don't, don't we all need to learn that? I think what often keeps us from crying out to Jesus like this dad is some form of pride in our life. Like, I, I think I got this, God. I can figure this out on my own. I'll let you know how it goes afterwards. But that's what self-reliance is. Saying, I, I'm good by myself. I'm good on my own. And you and I can know that we're on a sinful path of self-reliant unbelief when we stop coming to Jesus for help. So what are we to do then? Paul Miller in his great book, A Praying Life, says this, we don't need self-discipline to pray continuously. We just need to be poor in spirit. In other words, it's not more discipline, it's more desperation. See, we certainly experience that kind of desperation the most when we're in seasons of difficulty or suffering, but the reality is we are just as desperate for Jesus all of the time in our life. The question is, do we recognize it? Do we act on it? This one story of real need, of real struggle, this one line of honesty has been so helpful for me over the years because it normalizes unbelief. It normalizes doubt because I wrestle with faith too. I doubt God also. Sometimes I question his intentions for me. 
and even who he is. I wrestle with doubt when I see so much brokenness in and evil in the world around us. I wrestle with doubt when things don't go the way that I hope they will or the way that I want them to. I wrestle with doubt even in the middle of the night sometimes when one of my kids won't go back to sleep. Like, God, do you even care? So easy for you to do something. Why are you not showing up? You must not love me. How quickly I go there to doubt God's care for me. I wrestle with doubt when I feel like I'm on my own and have to figure out life, whether it's finances or parenting or marriage or ministry or friendship, when I have to figure it out on my own. I get frustrated with God. You know, music has been helpful for me over the years in this area. Bands like King's Kaleidoscope or Citizens are honest about faith, honest about struggles, honest about doubt. I like rap music as well. One of my favorite rap artists, Andy Minio, in his song, Clarity, says this. Some days I feel like you love me. Some days I feel like you left me. Man, I feel that way sometimes. Maybe you do too. Right after he raps this line, there's a clip of an interview from Madeline Lingle, the author of Wrinkle in Time, and she says something profound. She says, the second I'm furious with God, I'm totally close. Because like, you cannot be furious with somebody who isn't there. I love that. I believe, help my unbelief. Faith and faithlessness mixed together. The point in all of this is come to him. Don't try to do it on your own. Come to Jesus in desperation, to come to him for help. Come to him with all of your emotions with all of your feelings and all of your needs, with all of your sin and all of your struggles, with all of your faith, with all of your doubts. Come to him. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a promise. No caveats, no qualifiers, except to come to him in humility, turning away from your sin, turning away from self-reliance and trusting that he is full of grace and mercy, that Jesus is your very present help in time of need. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus is always going to fix everything, at least not in the way that you want or the way that you might hope. Jesus may not bring full relief in this life, but he will one day. For those who have faith in him, we can know that he will make all things new. But you know, sometimes in our darkest moments, our hardest times, it's hard to come to Jesus when we feel weak and weary when you seem to have a whole lot more unbelief than belief. That's why we're not supposed to live this life alone, but to do so in community and relationship with other brothers and sisters. In moments where you have a lot of unbelief and a little belief, there's others around you that have a lot of belief and a little unbelief. We need to be encouraged by the faith of one another. We need to share life with each other and be honest, not only with Jesus, but with our brothers and sisters about where we're struggling. We're not looking for cliche answers in those moments. We're just looking for more of Christ. Set Jesus before one another. That's why it's important to gather together as a church on a Sunday, week in and week out, because all of us easily forget the gospel week in and week out. I need to come and hear you sing. I need to come and see you engage God's word with me. And some of you maybe can't, can't sing the words that are on the screen. That's okay, because there's somebody next to you who can Listen, let the voices of your brothers and sisters encourage your faith. So don't just show up on Sundays when everything's great in your life 
show up when everything's in the pits in your life, when you're really struggling. May this place, this community be a place of safety and peace and encouragement. Like this man, it's often times of difficulty that we are both prone to doubt and to faith. What you and I really believe about Jesus is revealed when we're tested. And God often uses seasons of suffering to help us see how much we're trying to be self-reliant and how much we really need the real and risen Jesus, which is exactly who Mark focuses on next. See, we've seen a real need and a real struggle of faith, but let's not overlook what Jesus does to be able to redeem and restore us from all of our sin and all of our suffering, including our unbelief. Verses 30 through 32. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. When he's killed, after three days, he will rise but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Now this, in some ways, is just a transitional section for Mark. He's finished one part of the story about Jesus and he's reminding us of where the story is going. Jesus has come down the mountain back to reality, but he's heading to Jerusalem where he will be arrested, falsely accused, sentenced to death, brutally executed at the insistence of the religious leaders and at the hands of the Roman authorities. But to what end? We have to remember or maybe understand for the first time that all of the challenges in our world and in our lives are a result of sin, rebellion against God. And that rebellion is rooted in self-reliant unbelief. Adam and Eve rejected God and his good authority saying, I can do this on my own. I don't need your help, God. Resulting in cosmic and catastrophic consequences, suffering and sadness, death and darkness, separation from God, and now you and I follow in their footsteps, declaring our independence, declaring our self-sufficiency. But listen, it's all a sham. We aren't independent on our own. We aren't free in and of ourselves. We are enslaved. We're trapped in darkness, an endless cycle of shame and self-doubt. We are in a desperate place. That means then that your biggest problem in life isn't the external effects of sin, as hard as those might be, it's to be forgiven and freed from our own rebellion. A rebellion that, like our first parents, is rooted in our own self-reliant unbelief. That you and I can live life just fine apart from God. See, Mark is telling this story throughout this gospel. He's telling this story about Jesus to show us, to put Jesus before us. Who is he really? And what does it mean to know him? What does it mean to follow him? And in this story of this desperate dad, we have to see that it's the cross. We have to see that it's the empty tomb that's the means for you and I to find our hope and help in Jesus. The real and risen Jesus who sympathizes with you and me in our weaknesses and overcomes all of our sin. That means that if you've placed your trust in him and your faith in him, who he really is and what he has done, then you can know that he died for your own self-reliant unbelief too. So again, my exhortation is the same. Like the desperate dad, come to him. Come to him. Notice the disciples are still missing who Jesus is. Even at this point, three of them have seen Jesus' glory in a profound way. All of them have seen him just again, free this boy from this unclean spirit, but they still don't quite get it. They don't even understand what Jesus is saying about dying and rising. But it says they're too afraid to ask. They're still afraid to come to him. 
you don't have to be afraid to talk with Jesus. You don't have to have fear that he will reject you or forsake you. Even if you don't understand everything going on in your life or what he's up to, you don't have to be afraid and turn inward to your own thoughts and your own abilities. I can go there quickly, just stuck in my own thoughts, my own head, instead of turning to him. But instead, I want to encourage you to turn to him, whether you have a lot of faith or you feel like it's on fumes. Come to him and cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. And in those moments of doubting God's love for you and his care for you, look once again to the cross and the empty tomb. See them as clear markers that God has your best interest in mind to give you life and make you new. See that in and through Jesus, God has already provided a remedy for our greatest need now and forever. Brothers and sisters, in the midst of the real needs of life and the real struggles of belief, come again and again and again to the real and risen Jesus for help. He will never leave you and he will never forsake you. Amen.